<laughs> Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Super pumped to be talking about meditation, sleep, consciousness, and so much more. We have Dr. Tucker Puck, Dr. Tucker Peck joining us on the show. Hello. Hi, Alan. Thank you for coming on, Tucker. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. This is my first time doing this live. <laughs> I'm really excited for this. And it was so great hanging out with you and Jay just like a couple like couple weeks ago. It was very fun. For those that don't know Tucker's background, he's a meditation teacher, clinical psychologist, and founder of drugfreesleep.com, an online course to overcome insomnia. He's also the founder and board president of Open Dharma Foundation, which provides scholarships to meditation retreats. And you can find all the links in the bio below, meditatewithtucker.com, drugfreesleep.com, as well as opendharmafoundation.org. All right, Tucker, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask, ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? I guess my thought on the direction of the world is I would see two forces. I've been the last couple of years for fun studying history, and the thing that keeps coming out from studying history is how much better it is than it used to be. Like, way, way, way better, right? Uh, there's huge sections of the planet where there's been no war, no um, plagues for generations. That's never happened before. Um, our ability to get along with each other is increasing uh, on a large scale, not recently. Um, our ability to get along with each other increasing, our ability to be okay with people who are different than us, that wasn't even a thing 100 years ago, right? There was no moral obligation to someone of a different tribe. That idea is about as old as our great-grandparents. Um, on one hand, things look like they're getting better and fast. Um, on the other hand, our ability to destroy ourselves uh, by accident and on purpose also seems to be getting like much better fast. Um, number two seems to be winning right now. Um, it seems like a pretty short game at this point. Um, but I don't know. I feel optimistic about how quickly things can change. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the new... Uh, concentration of uh, our ability to cause uh, catastrophic harm on civilization, but also the, um, the, uh, the widespread diseases that are no longer uh, prevalent, um, <laughs> but the optimism of uh, our ability to make things uh, better uh, quickly. Yeah, really rapid increase in quality of life, morality, ability to get along, um, and, and so on. Uh, leaves me some optimism that we can figure this out. I think especially recent history, some things have happened that nobody ever would have predicted hours beforehand. And I think that actually leaves me kind of optimistic. Um, we don't know what the future is. And the hundreds of articles on Facebook predicting the collapse of civilization due to global warming by Christmas, um, we, we, we don't know. Now let's do the journey. So you were born in New Jersey, grew up in Florida. How did you get your interest in science, meditation, consciousness, sleep? Um, I got interested in meditating because I used to just drive. I would drive as far as it was possible to drive given the amount of time. I did 10,000 miles in 24 days one time. Whoa. Um, I've been to all 50 US states, all but one, arguably two of the Canadian provinces. And um, I had driven from Rhode Island via Northern British Columbia to Portland, Oregon. And um, I was lying in the grass enjoying the sunlight. Suddenly was like, why don't I just drive 6,000 miles to lie in the grass and enjoy the sunlight? There has to be some way to do this at home. And a couple years earlier, I'd read a Thich Nhat Hanh book where he says we don't need to go to China to enjoy the blue sky. 
I was like, I gotta figure out how to enjoy the blue sky without going to China. So I like sprinted over to Palace Bookstore, um, read meditation all day. <laughs> um, was really like hooked ever since then. Um, I get into psychology, my, uh, my dad died young and uh, partly because of that and partly because of coincidence, there's a lot of like tragedy in my family in a short period of time and it felt like everything uh, fell apart really quickly. And um, I was in a really good friend group at the time. It was a fraternity, actually. They were like taking great care of me. And I felt so like happy and blessed. And like my heart was just open from how good all these people were being to me. Whereas my life was, was tragedy and problems. And um, uh, I felt so good despite having a lot of problems and saw so many people around me feel so bad despite having pretty few problems. And uh, that was, I was studying Spanish literature in college and just like uh, dropped that quickly and uh, switched to psychology after all that happened. So there's the driving across the country to, <laughs> to lay on the grass and absorb the sunlight and you're like, okay, what's the, what's the shortcut? How can I do this near my home? And then another one is the, the father. The father passed when you were, how old? I was 20. You were 20? Yeah. Okay. And then it was really nice for you to have a group um, to, to, that would help you get through that at the time. That's critical. Yeah. And you felt kind of like warm and yeah, big, yeah. warm, big, like big heart radiating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why are there people with big problems who seem happy and small problems who seem miserable? That was the question that got me interested in psychology. Mm. Mm. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. And that actually led you then to, okay, do Brown psych and then a master's and PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, but then during that time, you were also in 2005, were introduced to Sharon Salzberg of Insight Meditation Society. Yeah. And then also um, Chula Dasa of The Mind Illuminated. Um, and then that uh, approved you, uh, Dr. John Yates approved you to teach. Yeah. yeah okay. So, right. so teach us about that time period of doing um, both uh, yeah, teach us about the time period. It was in sequence, so I, I met Sharon first. Um, she's a pretty famous person now, but, but even, even back then she was pretty uh, well known, but we, we just kept like crossing paths. So I got to study with her a lot, despite her you know, being generally hard to find. It just seemed like coincidences were always in the same place. Um, she's a really impressive person. I could tell you Sharon's stories that would take the entire Maybe next episode I'll, I'll, I'll just tell Sharon stories. But if you want to see what an enlightened person is like, um, she'll deny it, but you, <laughs> you should go meet Sharon. So, yeah, let's tell Well, tell us about her. Like, how, what are her qualities that, like, yeah, that make her like that? Um, I got an email one time from a guy I didn't know in Tucson. Tucson's a segregated city south of a certain street. It's, it's a... Mostly, mostly Hispanic. Uh, Spanish is the primary language. And it was somebody living in the Spanish side of town uh, emailed and said, hey, uh, my wife's Costa Rican. Um, let's make lunch for Sharon when she comes into town. She's a New York Times bestselling author. And she was like, hey, do you want to go? I was like, I don't know these people. Uh, I don't know that neighborhood, but um, OK. Uh, we spent three hours there. Uh, Sharon doesn't know Spanish. Uh, the wife did not know English. Uh, the husband and I spoke both. The idea that she was a celebrity who had other things to do just doesn't cross her mind. <laughs> I, 
after I used to put on these workshops for her, and she would come and we'd sell hundreds of tickets, and she'd talk all day. And at the end, there'd be this huge line of people who'd want to uh, tell her how much she'd change their lives and things like that. And I would try to get rid of everybody. You know, Sharon's tired, let's get out of here. And she said, no, stop it. I want to meet every single one of these people. Um, one time we were having dinner, and I was like, why do you hang out with me? And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, don't you know Oprah? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're more famous than most people that hang out with me. And she was like, I did so many years of loving kindness practice, I don't think I can feel or act like a celebrity. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, whoa. <laughs> and what, what do you think emerges from that loving kindness practice that gets people to feel that degree? There's like, I think it's particularly prevalent here in the Bay Area, the like petty narcissism, right? Somebody's like, um, not very important and thinks they're uh, the most important person you'll ever meet, the smartest person you'll ever meet. I don't know, probably in your, in your work you get to come across that pretty regularly. <laughs> um, I like you trying to keep a straight face because some of your other guests are watching right now thinking, is it me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like that. I think I'm a rock star. <laughs> I'm guilty. Um, it seems like narcissism and arrogance are such like almost part and partial of the tiniest degree of success. And in the spiritual world, this is not better. You know, um, In the spiritual world, this is at least as bad as it is anywhere else. To see somebody who's at the top and almost seems like she can't act like she's at the top um, is really unusual. The loving kindness meditation, its function is to create a sense of love to all beings, regardless of their character, their qualities, or how you feel about them. Um, it's like a hard practice where you, you're basically practicing like being a person loving another person. It's this really simple activity like that. And you find if you do a lot of it over time, weird things start happening. Sharon tells this story where um, She's on a loving kindness retreat and she knocks something off the counter and it breaks. And the thought in her head goes, you're so clumsy, but I love you. Mm. And she's like, where, where did that come from? That's not what that voice usually sounds like. Mm. I, I've had a lot of these experiences too, where like, it's much easier to be around people I don't like. Uh, it's much easier to be in touch with some kind of human essence that isn't, isn't touched by celebrity or is, uh, Celebrity feels bad to it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As though the the hierarchy um, and one's roles in uh, in like influencing people um, positively is 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 great, and it can be present there. But the ego doesn't get inflated. The the it's the, the selfless spirit still there of loving all beings. It's yeah. There's. I want, we'll get to a breakdown, too, of the different styles yeah, of this sure. in a bit. Um, so that's Sharon. And then what about um, um, Chuladasa as well? So Chuladasa, I met him in uh, well over ten, something like 10 years ago. Um, so he was living out in the desert outside of Tucson. He was completely unknown. And um, I figured now I'm living in Tucson, you know, I'll take a little like break from my, my well-known teacher and this, you know, local nudnik will be, will be fine for the short term. Um, 
And it was a couple of years before I realized what sort of person I had come across. <laughs> so he, he wrote this book called The Mind Illuminated that uh, you know a bunch of us in the community were helping edit different drafts of. And it came out three or four years ago and it was like an instant Amazon bestseller. It's all over the world. Ezra Klein pitched it uh, yesterday on, on his podcast. Uh, the book is a masterpiece and I just got really lucky to be hanging out with this guy when there was like a half dozen other people um, hanging out with him. And so then, so then he and Sharon were the major um, role models for you during this time period. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sharon, very much Sharon first. Like that, that heart space was what I wanted. The Mind Illuminate is not a heartful book. You know, it's a 500 page, very academic, intellectual manual on how to meditate. Okay. And okay. Uh, I wanted to go in that order. Like, uh, at first I was turned off by how intellectual it was. Uh, it felt almost like getting in touch with emotions and then trying to figure out what to do with them, you know, how, to, how to regulate them. And still doing clinical psychology at the same time as all of this happening. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing clinical psychology almost nonstop since I was 20. I, I took a year and a half off to host live game shows, which would be a long story. Well, yeah, yeah. Third really? episode. <laughs> live game shows, Tucker Fest live game shows. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. What'd you give that up for? Um, it didn't feel like a calling. I mean, it was really, I was in character. I got to be like a, uh, you know, kind of local celebrity because I would do all these shows around Rhode Island. Um, but I was entertaining drunk people and I felt like um, I had gone as far down that life course as, as I needed to go. Mm -hmm. So then... Um, okay, then what was, what were the, like, the, what were the culminations, you know, at the time period that, like, got you to understand? Was it mostly, like, the mind um, illuminated that got you to understand how to measure skill and success in meditation? No, I mean, mind illuminated is pretty recent. That, uh, uh, that came out after I finished grad school. No, I was, so I ended up going to grad school um, to study sleep and meditation. Okay. I had started studying sleep. Randomly, I wanted to study psychology and I heard you needed a lab and the woman sitting next to me said she knew about a sleep lab And I was like, well, that's a thing. I mean, I just need some lab I don't care about that, but I'll go there and uh, I just got branded as like a sleep person and year after year There was some reason to study sleep more and maybe I Started studying sleep in 2003 maybe Seven years in I was like this is cool. Okay, okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to get away from this anymore. Um, so, gee, I'm sorry, I, I blanked on your question. Just that um, uh, the measuring the skill and success oh, in yeah, meditation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I went to grad school. Um, I wanted to go to grad school to study meditation with a PhD in clinical psychology, which is trendy now, but in 2007 was really yeah. impossible. Um, so I was rejected from 27 grad schools over the course of two years. And then the University of Arizona, I wrote them a letter like, explaining why they'd made a mistake rejecting me, and it actually worked, and I got in. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I ended up in a sleep laboratory, and I was doing some sleep and meditation studies, but the, the problem I kept seeing was, there are basically three ways to test, if you wanna know the effect of meditation on anything, there's basically three ways to test it. You could compare people who meditate to people who don't, and see how they're different on your, on your variable. That's a waste of time. They're just totally different sorts of people. 
um, there'd be no reason to suspect that the difference between meditators and non-meditators was because of the meditation. The second thing is you can run a study. So one group meditates, the other group doesn't meditate. This is really short term. Like th there was a, a few years ago, the Shamatha project was like three month meditation retreats as part of the study. And I think they had like an eight digit budget for a three month study. Sasaki Roshi meditated for like 90 years. So a study is not really feasible. You can spend a lot of money to get a slice of meditation. The other way you can do it is compare people who practice more to people who practice less. So everybody who's done 1,000 hours of meditation used to be someone who did 10, and some of the people who do 10 will make it to 1,000. The trouble with that is that practice isn't a very good indicator of anything, right? <coughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. I'm going to be very cool and spit into this. Uh, take your time. No worries. <laughs> Let's do this thing here. Ah, oh, we'll just <coughs> get a shot of me while you take care of As I uh, announced to your viewers, this is my first time doing anything live. Uh, in the past, I can be as gross as I want. It just gets, <laughs> gets edited out. Um, <coughs> so practice is not an irrelevant measure of, of anything, right? I can practice basketball for the rest of my life and, and uh, not be anywhere near Steph Curry when he was a little kid, right? So what would be optimal is if you could actually measure skill at meditation. Um, how good are people at meditation? Mm -hmm. And then you have a really good way to measure whatever you want. So make a chart, skills on one axis, uh, whatever variable you care about is on the other axis, and see how it relates to skill. So I ended up doing my PhD dissertation on the question of how you would measure skill at meditation. Cool. Yeah, 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 at the University of Arizona. Okay, now I kind of I see how things um, culminate now. So, so it was learning um, from Sharon and Chuladasa at the same time that you're doing the master's and PhD, and then that sparked your, okay, I'm going to make a scientific study um, in the field of meditation here with um, skill level being, um, and comparing that to other variables. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, okay. And what were the things that you compared it to? What were your findings? So... The, the study was more of a method study, so it was trying to see, is there anything that relates to skill at meditation? So the way I did it was, there was no a priori hypotheses. I'm going to collect any data that, uh, anything I can cheaply and easily measure, you know, I was a grad student, so uh, you can't do MRIs very easily. Anything I had a grad student budget, I, that the, the Varela Award from Mind and Life had, had funded it. Anything I can measure, I'm just going to measure it. Um, so respiration, uh, brain waves at different points on the scalp, um, uh, different subjective measures, uh, muscle tension, things like that. Measure everything you can in a baseline period and then in a meditation period. See what's changing between baseline and meditation. Then see what's correlated. So if things are changing, to, if two things change together, we keep them. If something is changing unrelated to anything else, we, we drop it. Uh, that left, I think, maybe six factors. There were three different subjective measures, like how much you practiced in your life, scores on a mindfulness inventory, that these correlated with different brainwave increases. So uh, the most robust data that's come out since then is the rate at which alpha and theta waves increase across your scalp seems to be indicative of skill at meditation. Okay. What's interesting about that is 
this only seems to be true for the first couple minutes of practice. So 20, 25 minutes in, you'd actually want to be seeing different brain states depending on what you're trying to do. So somebody who's trying to be deeply concentrated and somebody doing metta who's trying to be deeply loving, you wouldn't expect them to develop any sort of similar brain state. Mm. But in the beginning of meditation, pretty much everybody has to do the same thing, right? If you try to meditate, you sit down and the first five or 10 minutes, like dinner, sex, work, things you said in the past that you wish you didn't, mm -hmm. uh, there's like the nonsense of daily life that you need to disconnect from and you need to turn your attention inward. So it's thinking about the email you're supposed to send and you need to turn it in. Um, that process seems to be the same across most mm -hmm. schools of meditation. So in the early phase, you, you can probably measure skill by how quickly people are able to um, uh, develop alpha theta. That, that's mm -hmm. still pretty speculative. Okay, so then on one side we have the uh, develop the like you said is, is this part so critical? It's like uh, letting go of all the distractions, tuning attention inward, and then on the other side is like then there's so that's same, but then there's the differences that break for uh, meta versus uh, mm -hmm. breath work versus guided body scans, etc. Okay, yeah. and then what do those look like then? Um, there's not a lot of data on particular types of meditation. There's one old study, I will confess I don't remember the citation, but I remember reading the study, so we'll assume it's true, where <laughs> um, they're ringing a bell, and the bell should produce a habituation response, right? So the first time you hear a sound, it's novel, and there's a, a, an ERP in the brain, a spike in, in uh, brain electrical activity. And the second time you hear the bell, it's smaller, and the third time you hear the bell, it's even smaller, because it's not uh, useful information to the brain anymore, right? If it's not novel. So there's one study that's looking at controls, uh, concentration meditation, and vipassana, uh, like an uh, open awareness type of meditation. And so in controls, they're finding exactly what you would expect. Each time they hear the sound, there's less of a neural response than the previous time they heard it. In the Vipassana meditators, they're trying to keep this open, uh, like beginner's mind, where you're trying to look deeply into the sensation of what's really occurring. Shoshin. And yeah, Shoshin. Yeah, so in people doing that, there wasn't a habituation response. It's the same neural activity every time, right? Because they're trying to be interested in, uh, in the stimulus. In the concentration meditation, there was no brain reaction to the bell. They had trained themselves to ignore outside stimuli, and it wasn't permeating. Okay, and um, so, so okay. When you when you find you're finding that um, skill level is like how quickly you can see like through a measure like EEG, um, how quickly people get to um, alpha and theta states. It's a very early sort of skill. I think actual measures of skill at meditation using a machine are, are a, a thing for the future at best. But okay. Uh, okay. Th this was like a first stab was, was a find this correlation matrix and then rerun the study. So initially there's no hypotheses, find anything that goes together, then do the whole thing over where you're only looking to see if it confirms and it, it mostly did. Okay, okay. And then how do you use meditation with the um, patients in the clinical psychology practice? Um, it depends, so uh, it varies a lot by what people need, right? So if somebody's in an abusive relationship, probably meditation is not the place to start, right? 
um, somebody who needs safety, somebody who needs housing. Um, you'll also see a lot of places where people are causing the damage to themselves and stopping soon might be possible. And in that kind of case, I would, I would focus on behaviors, you know, uh, making changes. Where meditation helps in the clinic, uh, there's a huge number of ways. Um, one of the most common skills of meditation is focusing your attention, right? So if you, if you meet somebody with ADHD, it's not that they can't pay attention. If you've ever seen little kids with ADHD, they can play the same video game for five hours. They pay phenomenal attention. They have no ability to decide where the attention goes, right? It's gone to the video game, and um, it's going to stay there as long as it wants. So in meditation, you're precisely practicing that skill. Uh, all of us, the first time you try to focus on your breath, fine, you can't, right? You get a half of a breath, and then for five minutes, you're thinking about something else, and then you suddenly realize you weren't doing what you meant to be. So for people who are coming to the clinic for attentional issues, meditation is literally directly training that. Um, for depression, there's actually pretty good data on meditation being helpful for depression, as long as it's not too severe. A general principle with meditation is it is placing you face to face with your own mind and mm. no distractions. Mm -hmm. And if your mind is dark enough, if your mind is psychotic enough, you really don't want to do that. Um, I was talking with somebody this morning who had a psychotic episode and wants to get back to meditation. I said six months, you know. Uh, six months of no psychotic symptoms, and, and we can talk meditation. Don't touch this stuff until then. Be in contact with, with the outside world. Um, so in terms of clinical disorders, the thing I've seen it help most quickly with is panic, actually. Mm. So a panic attack is usually caused by this feedback loop where there'll be some unpleasant... I'm not supposed to hit you're the good. mic. Yeah, Apologies to everybody yeah. out there. I hope you weren't wearing headphones. Um, <laughs> there'll, there'll be some sensation, some unpleasant physical sensation often in your chest. This will be followed by the thought, this is either insanity or death, right? This sensation is really bad. That thought makes the sensation an awful lot worse, mm -hmm. which confirms the thought in a terrible sort of feedback loop. If it were possible to just notice you're short of breath right now, but you can breathe, you've had panic attacks before, they haven't killed you, they won't now, then actually the tension in your chest is fine. Uh, you might be sweating pretty badly. I'm, I'm from Arizona, you know, we're, we're, we're used to it down there. <laughs> sweating, no problem. Um, if you actually notice the physical symptoms of a panic attack, they're inconvenient, but they're not that bad. So uh, I've seen a lot of people in three weeks of meditation have panic attacks quite under control. Um, the other way to help is the, the most common reason people come into a clinic is for what's called adjustment disorder, which basically means not a mental health problem, a normal issue dealing with life. And the way that meditation allows you to have no distractions, just look at your own mind and see how it's operating, noticing patterns and gaining the ability to work with them and interrupt them by knowing what they are, this seems to help a lot of the people that I work with. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it seems as though the, the, op, the applications of meditation to um, psychological issues are um, only starting to be explored um, 
at their fullest. It's like the practice being thousands of years old, but its application, especially with um, being able to scientifically measure its successes, seem to be more and more um, coming up. With you know, depression, ADHD, um, panic attacks, it's like there's lots of potential ways of, of leveraging meditation to help with yeah, psychological issues. Um, how about the relationship between um, our disconnection from nature and the uh, mental disorders that we have? What do you think about that? Um, really hard to say. I think um, no one knows anything about where consciousness and psychological functioning come from. One thing that seems to be deeply the answer is there's not one cause. There's a lot of causes and they're all interacting. Um, I had seen a few studies that schizophrenia is equally, present equally prevalent across all cultures. So even cultures that are living in, uh, you know, living more in nature, not living in cities, um, schizophrenia is equally prevalent. Uh, I, I don't think it's the case that if everybody went hiking, mental illness would go away. Um, on the flip side, it sure does seem to help a lot of people um, to get out into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what about um, the relationship between like over-prescribing um, pharmaceuticals versus uh, prescribing something like a meditation or a um, nature bathing, that type of stuff? What are your thoughts about that? Oh, uh, that kind of sums it up. What, 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 yeah, 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 that what kind of sums like it up. Know. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So that's, you'd say that that's a pretty um, strongly, you agree with that statement, like we're over-prescribing pharmaceuticals. Um, yeah, I think if you look at any guidelines, they're not saying start with pharmaceuticals. The incentive structure of modern healthcare leads to everybody starting with pharmaceuticals. Um, yes. The incentive, say that again. Yeah, the incentive structure mm. of the healthcare industry is to start with pharmaceuticals. Mm. It's perverse as fuck. Um, so I'm a psychologist. I would make a boatload more money if I were a psychiatrist. Um, because of the payback that you would get from the pharmaceutical companies that would give you kick kickback on They're the not allowed to do that, that anymore. They've, 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 yeah, so they stopped. <laughs> They've conveniently made that illegal, but no, even just from insurance companies, private pay. Also, uh, I'm seeing one patient in an hour slot. A psychiatrist is seeing four. Also, I'm, telling, yeah, yeah. I'm telling people, like, I, I don't know if you've been in therapy, like, it's awful. <laughs> Therapy's really hard work. It's looking at your relationships. It's looking into your own mind. It's seeing changes you need to make that you are too defensive to want to look yes, at. Yes, 100%. Um, that's exactly it. Therapy's <laughs> awful. And the, so well said. the idea that... Too defensive to look and make it those necessary changes. Yeah. yeah. The idea that you could just take a pill and not have to look inside. It's a disease. The only reason that you feel the way you feel is because there's chemicals in your brain that are broken. And uh, we should fix chemicals and change nothing about your life, nothing about your mind, nothing about your relationships. Your terrible job is, is fine. Your bad relationship is great. Like, uh, uh, pills, please. That's really appealing. And from the healthcare perspective, it's really lucrative. So I think that's why people are locked in this. Also, from the, from the healthcare perspective... Fuck! <laughs> I, I want to share my story about when I saw a psychologist and I talked to his boss, the psychiatrist, 
And I remember I saw the psychologist for a few sessions and the last session I went, I smoked marijuana. And I remember talking to the psychologist and explaining to him, you know something, I, I feel like I'm okay. You know, nat naturally I, I smoke the pot. And, he, and he's looking at me throughout the whole session with, you know, like I'm wasting his time. And then I talked to his boss, the psychiatrist, and it was my time to get prescribed uh, a drug. And I just remember telling the, the, the doctor, you know, I think I can work this out. I don't think I need a pharmaceutical. I think if I just apply it, apply what I need to do, I, I can fix myself. And, and he, now I'm a miracle, miracle of modern science. <laughs> Tucker listed all of the things that we're not repatterning our behavior with our relationships or our family or our work or just our nutrition or exercise or um, our connection to nature, all these different things. And we just, instead of repatterning those, we're just like the easiest thing possible is this, you know, this pill instead. But to be able to t say something like, no, nah, I'm good, I can repattern those behaviors is like, that requires a really high level of conscientiousness. A lot of work, granted, yeah, of granted. Work. It, was, it took years. It wasn't an overnight mm -hmm. process, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a lot more happier these days. Awesome. But it's also, as the story started, I, I, I smoked a little weed instead of going to the session uh, in my <laughs> right mind, quote, unquote. And then uh, I've just been a self-medicator since then. So in summary, don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> oh, I wasn't endorsing. I have a 13-year-old niece, an 11-year-old nephew, you know, I agree, Dr. Tucker. Um, yeah, I think the, the other incentive issue you come up against is um, there's not enough healthcare providers. Um, maybe in a place like San Francisco, maybe, but most places in the country and world, there's not enough healthcare providers. And somebody who is, you name a feeling, they hand you a pill, next client, um, they can just see a lot more patients than I would be able to. The, the last thing I just felt the need to say on that topic is um, there are people who have repatterned everything mm. and yeah. have severe symptoms. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would not ever say psychotropic drugs are bad. They're, they're a godsend for many people who couldn't be okay without them. Sure, sure. Yeah, and then the perverse incentives in healthcare totally need to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. Um, how about our relationship between sleep and meditation? Yeah, that one's interesting actually. So if you Google sleep and meditation, um, maybe one day you'll get to drugfreesleep.com, but in the meantime, <laughs> uh, you generally get like thousands of pages of if only you get better at meditation, um, you will sleep. and. There's a large sense in which that's false. So I was talking earlier about the first 10 minutes of meditation, maybe 15, 20, whatever. Short periods of meditation are relaxing, turning the attention inwards. I think everybody would be better served by doing 15 minutes of meditation a day. Um, longer amounts of meditation really can vary a lot, right? We were talking about this earlier. If your mind's really dark, and you do an hour and a half of meditation, that's an hour and a half of staring at the darkness in your mind. And that's why I um, don't meditate. <laughs> this is exactly why I don't meditate. I do not want to talk to those demons. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, the killer inside me. Yeah, we, right. We do, so we do want to do that, though. It, it does it. It's most certainly. Maybe. Not, maybe. Al not always helps. Not always. 
Like to, to do long periods of meditation? No, not always helps to even for a couple of minutes to reflect on the the inner struggles that we may be having, looking yeah, at ourselves in the mirror. Yeah, I think a couple minutes always helps, but there's it seems like even in people who've had really easy seeming lives, you know, they've never been abused, they've never been in war zones, they've always had enough food. There's decades of crying that you find when you look deeply into the mind for everybody. And uh there's heavy stuff in there, you know, in, in, the, in the instructions for Jewish mystical meditation, uh, before you start meditating, you're supposed to be 40 years old, uh, be married and have a teacher. The idea is like, this is dangerous stuff, don't just dive in. Yeah. This is not true of short meditation, this really is true of long meditation. So picking up a daily meditation practice, obviously I think is a great thing to do, I do it, I go all over the place teaching it, um, but it needs a black box warning on it, like you're taking the, I don't remember the matrix colors. Is it the blue pill or the red pill? The uh, the the red pill takes you deeper into okay, great. into yeah knowledge. It needs reality. a black box warning yeah. that you're taking the red pill. Red pill, and yeah, yeah. as anybody who's taken the red pill has experienced, this may not help you sleep at all, right? <laughs> this may mm. really mm. promote insomnia. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So what you find neurologically is the more people meditate, the better they report sleeping. So on any like subjective measure of sleep quality, the more they meditate, the more they're pleased with their sleep. On any objective measure of sleep quality, the worse your sleep gets. And the objective is, I'm gonna go ahead and say wrong. The objective is brainwaves. Nobody ever comes into the sleep clinic complaining they have too much alpha and, and too little delta. Uh, what matters about sleep is the subjective experience. But what we're finding is Sleep, uh, excuse me, meditation makes your brain more aroused 24 hours a day <clears throat> in a way that's good, in a way that doesn't seem to have like a negative side effects like sleep deprivation would. I, I lived for a summer with a scientist named Willoughby Britton, and she published a paper that's called Awakening is Not a Metaphor on <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the, the neuroscience of meditation and sleep. So it's cool, like, if what you like to be is to be awake. That's what the word Buddha means. It means wakeful, mm. somebody who is awake, and meditation will do that to you. But uh, yeah, so my usual tips would be if you're trying to meditate for insomnia, 10, 15, 20 minutes, guided meditations can be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like progressive muscle relaxation, something mm -hmm. that will chill you out mm -hmm. um, rather than cause you to go deep. And what I do for myself and what I recommend to all my patients is some other activity between meditation and sleep, mm. right? Because both of them are generally closing your eyes, not moving, doing nothing, but you're going in opposite directions. Meditation is do that and wake up, sleep is do that and fall asleep. Um, so if I meditate at night, I do a, you know, 15 minutes of reading a book or something so I can transition between the two activities. Mm -hmm. And then, then where did the moment come for you to be like drugfreesleep.com? Like I know I wanna help people tackle insomnia. Where was that? Yeah, so um, I, my grad school mentor, the, the guy that, he, he died a few years ago, unfortunately, the, the, the guy that unrejected me from University <laughs> of Arizona, um, he was the founder of this field of behavioral sleep medicine. And if you ask the National Institutes of Health, what should I do for insomnia? They will tell you a treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's extremely effective. I don't know the like research data, but in the three years I ran a clinic in Tucson doing insomnia treatment, I had one patient fail this treatment hmm. in the entire time. Um, everybody's sleep got better. I was one of two people in Tucson, which 
If somebody says they're going to the city and they mean Tucson, that's about a million people who are using Tucson as the city. And I think there were two sleep specialist therapists, uh, me and, and one other guy, we're the only ones I knew of. So there's this treatment, it works incredibly well for insomnia, and there's not even scratching the surface of the capacity of therapists to deliver the treatment. It's why everybody ends up on drugs. By the time people got to my clinic, I think this is part of why the treatment works so well, the people in my clinic were really motivated. They'd gone to see their doctor, their doctor had given them drugs, the drugs hadn't worked. They'd gone to see a sleep specialist who'd given them different drugs and given them tests, and they still weren't sleeping. And by the time they got to me, you know, if I told them to sleep naked, hanging upside down like a bat, they probably would have done it out of the desperation. What the National Institute of Health says is you should see me first and then second. So the idea of drugfreesleep.com was putting components of that treatment uh, accessible online to as many people as, as needed at once. And this, this, um, this includes things like even something like a behavior change. Yeah, so um, it's called drug-free sleep because un unsurprisingly there, there's, there's no drugs involved. Um, there's a few things you can change about your lifestyle that improve sleep. So there's different ways you can change your sleep patterns around that are, are maybe the most powerful component of the treatment. A lot of people are familiar with sleep hygiene, like the way that um, you'd want your bedroom to be dark, to be quiet, mm -hmm. um, not watching TV in beds become a pretty well-known concept. I also um, heard the coils in our bed aren't beneficial. Have you ever heard about that? The coils, right, you know, there's other, right, those metal coils. The spring mattress. Yeah, I've heard that those are, it's something with heat retention, right? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, there's certain mattresses are better than others um, in terms of sleep hygiene. Where meditation and mindfulness really does help is when thoughts are coming up in the night about I'm never gonna fall asleep, my life is over, this will happen forever, I will die of insomnia-related causes. Some mindfulness practice will help you during the night not have to respond to those, to treat them like thoughts rather than treat them like truths that will, will keep you up all night. I, I think the most important part of sleep is um, wake, waking up only like naturally. I think when you set your alarm for you know, 4.30 so you can get to work at seven, I think that's problematic. I like to sleep till I'm no longer tired. Does Alan make you get to work at seven? <laughs> no. I would, I'm, no, but I'm just I saying. I would renegotiate. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, 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 just, I just think it's very important to, to, to sleep un, uh, until you're done. Our shows usually start around like noon or two or whatever. Yeah, I figured yeah. nobody in Silicon Valley is going to be anywhere <laughs> by seven. Um. <laughs> what do you, you know, that's actually an excellent point. Some people say you must, you know, sleep with the sun. Uh, when the sun goes down, try to go to bed, try to wake up with the sun. Some people say that as well. Do oh, I sleep way after the sun. Yeah, so, yeah, so <laughs> what, what I think is important is consistency. Okay. So if you wake okay. up for work at 4.30, that's actually for... Many people, that's going to be fine. Um, the older you are, the harder it is to adjust your rhythm, although I've never been able to wake up early. <laughs> um, you can get adjusted to anything, right? If, if you, you can fly to the other side of the world, you sleep badly for a couple nights, and then your sleep is fine again. So consistency is important. In terms of the sun, uh, 
it's not good to see the sunlight before you've gone to bed. So I worked night shift for many years and I had these crazy, uh, like giant, one, one patient told me they looked like a, I was in a porno movie. These like giant blue blocking sunglasses. Um, it's not good to see the sunrise before you've gone to sleep, but otherwise you can pretty much manipulate with, with indoor light and seeing the sunlight while, yeah, yeah. while, you're, while you're awake. One of the things that happens with consistent sleep is sleep is multiple brain states, and it, the states have to occur in the right order, in the right percentage, mm -hmm. and you're not getting healthy sleep. You're not getting the benefits of sleep if this doesn't happen. And what most sleeping pills do is they knock you out. You're unconscious, so from your perspective, it feels like sleep. But from a neurological perspective, it's not sleep. Mm. or it's, it's a, mm. a Diet Coke version of sleep. Mm. And so there were studies that was finding like, if you take Ambien, you're sleeping more, but you're not any less likely to crash your car, you're not any less likely to trip and hurt yourself, because uh, the, the sleep you're getting with the medication is not fully restorative sleep. So this also, this also brings up the question, um, for me that um, there's like something really profound about certain um, certain s parts of our sleep where we feel um, it, it, I believe it's REM when when we especially when we're maybe uh, um, at the stage of like Ron was just describing where you're um, sleeping until the point rather than waking up to an alarm but you're sleeping until you're no longer tired mm -hmm. that section of sleep after like when you'd wake up to an alarm uh -huh. where you're just kind of like waking up like a little bit and then going back to bed. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you get the most profound ideas or you get, yeah, that yeah. type of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, REM sleep is actually circadian dependent, meaning REM sleep occurs when your brain thinks it ought to be the last two hours of your sleep phase, it mm. ought, when it's morning. Mm. So um, without a consistent rhythm, if your sleep times are varying wildly, um, REM can be disrupted for that reason. But if you wake up early in the morning, go back to sleep, and then wake up again, you're getting a brief period of REM sleep, so it's a brief period of dreaming sleep. And if there's sleep and insight is gonna come from, it would probably be that. Yeah, apparently, like, Thomas Edison used to, like, sleep with, like, a little rock in his hand, and when he'd fall asleep, the rock would fall, and he'd wake up and be like, oh, the shit, I gotta write that down. <laughs> Things like that. It's some interesting stuff for like hacking creativity. Yeah, yeah. REM sleep is when your body becomes paralyzed, so um, it, it'd be possible to hold the rock during non-REM sleep, but uh, it's, it's the same as though your spinal cord were cut during REM, mm -hmm. so all your muscles mm -hmm. relax perfectly. Mm -hmm. Sleep is a brief exercise in death. Yeah, and I, you know, I was saying right before we started taping, um, we're all going to be dead probably for eternity, so we might as well get some practice in. <laughs> the be and the I like that. The, <laughs> the, the, the sleep hygiene is also a very interesting one. I think we're, 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 we used to be TV, and then we're like, okay, stop with the TV in your bed. Then it's now it's become the phones. The phones, phones yeah. The phones are right under the pillows or like right on the <laughs> nightstand table or whatever, and that's like come on, like it makes sense, like put it away from the bedroom, like get it out of there. And then that helps a lot. Also, you're not rolling over, not only at night and stopping with the, uh, using it, but also in the morning you get to like actually be a human before you are, uh, yeah. yeah, before yeah. you're tethered into the, the, the vortex of, <laughs> of social stuff. Um, 
And then other things like not eating in bed, uh, light, uh, keeping it dark, these types of things. Sleep hygiene stuff, mm -hmm. I think, was really interesting as well. So the online course to overcome insomnia is at drugfreesleep.com. What does the trademark slogan go? Drugfreesleep.com. <laughs> well, we've been coming up with, with, with a lot of goings. I just like repeating it. Drugfreesleep.com, because it's a really good URL. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, when I told you, like, I write it down. I was like, you don't need to. Drugfreesleep.com. You'll, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget it. Drugfreesleep.com. You'll never forget it. That's you, it. You take any game show skills with that one. He did. He did, Rod. He did. Do you, is there any online stuff? Is there any video stuff of you doing the, the game show thing? Hosting the game show? No. No, it was in the mid-2000s. It was in the mid-2000s. Uh, like, videotaping everything wasn't ubiquitous yet. Okay. That's such a good idea. I wish I'd... Yeah, I wish I'd, I had I'd one. love to see it. I was looking for it. I just love seeing just myself with a. I just love seeing myself with a full head of hair. <laughs> Drugfreesleep.com. <laughs> you'll never forget it. Yeah, he also adds the "you'll never forget it," which also prompts the remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't consider that as a motto, but that's a great motto. Yeah. yeah. Also, also, uh, one of the most important functions of sleep is memory. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you so you might forget it. You're an insomniac. It's just phew, slipping out of your mind. But go to drugforsleep.com. Your memory will improve. Write it down. Again, with that, wait, how does sleep improve memory? S sleep, sleep acts as uh, an integration for all of your past uh, memories of your, of your life with the day that you lived. So like you live today, your whole day has to integrate with the past 52 years of your life. And that's what sleep does is it integrates yesterday with the 52 years of your life. Oh, that's right. I get it. Because I'm a, yeah, I can't sing. Yeah. I'm a walk-in on a daily basis. Did you ever hear that? You're what? A walk-in. Are you familiar with that term? Walk-in? Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. And so if you don't, if you don't walk in like your grandfathered in like that? No. no? Just these bodies are just machines and our conscious is separate from our brain. Therefore, in sleep, as it's a brief exercise in death, we wake with our conscious to this brain, but who and who we really are. Schizophrenia is not a disease, it's a computer glitch, if anything. And we just have to, you know, get, get you know, kind of into this, you put this body on like a costume in your, Whoever we are when we wake up, am I sounding in here? Am I sounding I mean, crazy? I want to see what Tucker has yeah, to say. Yeah, it's just it's it's fascinating actually. What, who um, who who I am uh, on a daily basis? What no, I discover? I'm, you know, I actually wouldn't agree with that. One, there's a couple reasons. Sleep is actually not dichotomous from wake. There's not a moment at which you are now asleep and used to be awake. When you look at an EEG and score sleep. The way you determine somebody is now asleep is a totally arbitrary formula where out of some 30 second period, uh, there's more theta than there was alpha. And that's it. Sleep and wake are continuous states. And then within sleep, there's multiple states of consciousness. So in, in non-REM 3 sleep, I'd probably agree with you, you are nobody in non-REM 3 sleep. Uh, there's no consciousness. Your brain is projecting delta waves, which is what it would project if it were damaged. You know. Uh, your, your brain is basically off. During REM sleep, your consciousness is actually pretty normal. Your surroundings are not, right? In a dream, you feel like you, even though the world is not like it's supposed to be. 
and you have a goldfish memory, which is why a dream doesn't have to have any consistency mm -hmm. and you can still believe it's, it's real. But it's, it's your consciousness in REM sleep, right? And my, you're asking the question? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. your well, consciousness uh, REM When you're dreaming, it feels like you're you, right? Yes, but what did uh, made me think is my me our memories in dreams, we don't necessarily ha have them. You know, when we're dreaming, you know, we can't recall a memory. <laughs> All we have is that right now. Yeah, moment. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas opposed to this 3D reality, you know, we can remember, but I just don't remember... I, I can't recall remembering anything in my dreams. It's always about the now. Oh, no, no, you, uh, you totally can. Like uh, uh, people in lucid dreaming studies, people who are in lucid dreams can actually communicate with people who are awake. They develop a code where like you, you can move your eyes. It's the only muscle you can control. So, you know, left, left, right, right, right means I'm in my lucid dream now. And you can develop a code where the dreamers can speak to people who are awake um, and, and they have no trouble remembering the code. Yeah, and you can also remember taking control of the dream state um, and, and uh, rem when, you get, when you leave it and you can write it down. I mean, you can write down memories from the dream state. Yeah. But it's true that it's not writing to memory in a normal sort of way, that often your dream just, you, you know it the first 10 seconds you're awake and then it and then disappears like it never it's happened, gone. That's right? why you gotta write it down, yeah. yeah. And that's why you gotta practice um, this, this really, um, like Ron even mentioned, just like uh, sleeping until you're not tired gives you those last couple mm -hmm. of legs of like, wake up a tiny little bit and then go back to sleep and then get deeper into that dream, take control of the dream, practice. You're doing things like before you go to sleep, think about the stuff that you want to, um, like before you go in the shower, think about the stuff before you go on a walk, think about the stuff that you want to um, have your mind wander about uh, a little bit. Yeah, and for the, the majority of people who don't have the ability to decide when wake up time is, uh, some external structure is going to decide that for them. Uh, it means, like you said before, uh, put your fucking phone away. <laughs> also go to bed <laughs> that, earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cutting enough time that if you have to be up at four, to go to bed early enough to get as much sleep as you need seems to be the hard part. The, the phone in particular, I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree that the phone is addictive. Yeah. And to sleep with it by your bed and think you'll behave, you know, it's like being an alcoholic and thinking you can keep a glass of, uh, glass of alcohol by the bed and it'll all go fine. Yeah. Um, it requires knowing that your willpower will fail yep. and needing structure and accountability to make the changes without resorting to willpower. So um, power right. your phone all the way off at night. Yep. How long does it take to turn your phone off from on, on from off? My God, hours of the thing. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty strong barrier to messing with the phone if That's it's right. powered all the way down. Yep. Put it in another room so you can't kind of unconsciously exactly. grab for it. Yeah. Um, to, to, to help create protected time to get the right amount of sleep. Yep. And it even helps with uh, flow states and all other kinds of stuff. Is like you'll be surprised at how much longer you'll keep your momentum afloat if your phone's powered off. <laughs> and you, you'd be surprised. You'd yeah, stay in yeah. flow more. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about Open Dharma Foundation founder and board president. There. Yeah, please. Provide scholarships to meditation retreats. Yeah. And you actually have some sold out um, ones that you're teaching. Ones in Denmark. You're sold out in June later this month. 
Um, then you have ones coming up in San Francisco and Washington, Arizona, Australia, Germany. Oh my gosh, you're teaching all over the place. <laughs> so yeah, so okay, walk us through Open Dharma Foundation. Yeah, so the Open Dharma Foundation, um, I was really sick in 2010. It looked like I was, was dying. I was in the hospital. And um, I decided that what I wanted to be done in my memory was a charity that would allow people to go on meditation retreats who couldn't afford to go. I was saying earlier, you know, if you just want to fall asleep, short meditation, long meditation is going deep into your mind. Um, it's pretty cool to go deep into your mind. And I just don't think there's a way to do it comparable to long meditation retreats where for days on end, you don't speak, you don't read or write, yep. you do nothing but meditate and take care of your body. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I teach these retreats as cheaply as humanly possible. The one in Denmark, it's 10 days lodging, food, and transport from the airport for a USD 630. So I'm keeping these yeah. things really cheap. Really cheap. That's but that super cheap. doesn't include your flight, and it doesn't include any money to me. I get paid by, by donation. So all told, to go to the cheapest 10-day retreat I can figure out how to put on is a four-digit amount of money, and you've got to be pretty privileged to have the amount of time off from work and that amount of money. So as cheaply as you do this, it is blocked off to most people. So the idea when I, was, when I thought I was dying was I wanted a foundation that would allow people to go on retreats, and then I didn't die and kind of dropped the idea for a couple years before a sudden recollection of like, I don't need to wait until I die. Why don't we just do this now? So I got some friends and colleagues and uh, we set up the Open Dharma Foundation. It's at opendharmafoundation.org. If you'd like to go on a meditation retreat and you can't afford to go, uh, go there. You can apply for a scholarship. If you have some extra money and think this is a cool idea, head there and, uh, and, and you, can, you can make a donation. Yeah, that's huge. Um, it's, um, it's really important to uh, drop the barrier of entry and make it as frictionless as possible for people to um, be able to explore different uh, things that interest them. And meditation exactly, being, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I have a cold and I just have to keep popping my ears. There we go. Oh, we'll, nice. we'll edit this out after the live feed. Um, <laughs> no, There's worries. no edit. Yeah, go ahead, blow your nose again. Blow oh, your nose again. Yeah, yeah, bring it on. To me. Bring it on. Yeah. 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 Lower the uh, audio. Or if all of us just start going like. Yeah. So open <laughs> open door foundation. We actually um, we funded a homeless person recently who applied for a scholarship. Excellent. And we will fund everything based on needs. So. Uh, we will buy your flight to get where you need to go. If you need to stay somewhere the night before, we will cover the hotel, we cover the registration fees, we pay the teacher. Uh, if, you, uh, if you really can't contribute anything, um, we'll, we'll pick up the entire tab. And, and so obviously, nice. if you can contribute anything, we would pick up the remainder. Yep, yep. And that's, oh, so that's both for um, both applying for those that want to apply as well as to give for those that can give for something like yeah, this. Yeah, please. Excellent. Um, and then, so what, let's walk through, um, just give us a quick bit on, for those that don't know, like what would it be like attending a Tucker Peck uh, course? Like what would be my first day with you? Yeah, so um, the, the structure of the course is a pretty standard Theravada Buddhist meditation retreat in, in many respects. So uh, it's noble silence. So uh, you'll talk to me, we'll, we'll talk about practice. I'll give a 90 minute lecture every evening based on prompts from the students. So there's a little bit of speaking there. And if uh, you're allergic to peanuts and you want to know if there's peanuts in lunch, obviously talk. But the idea is you don't say anything that's not immediately necessary and this leads to almost total silence. The day is pretty much just devoted to meditation. So 
It alternates sitting and walking, mostly for, uh, for comfort. It'd be hard to sit all day. And walking meditation is a more like engaged sort of practice, right? It's easier to bring home with you. Uh, there's three meals a day. Other retreats don't have dinner, but I, I like dinner. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's three meals a day. The, the way that I like to do these, I teach a lot with a, a guy named Upali. And when we first started teaching, decided some things we wanted to keep once the retreats got big like they have. And we wanted us to do them as, as cheaply as possible. So they're not going to be uh, at a resort on Maui. Um, and this makes it accessible to as many people as, as possible. The other is we wanted people to get as much personal attention as they possibly needed. So we don't generally break a 20 to 1 student to teacher ratio. Mm. So people have scheduled interviews with me on short retreats every day, on long retreats every second day. But there's office hours where people can meet with us multiple times per day. So I like to think that on retreats, those you are as supported as you'd be on, on any retreat anywhere. Um, it can get pretty hard. Traditionally, day three and four of the retreat is the kind of hell realm day. The first two days are often a kind of getting used to it. It's weird. It's kind of inconvenient. Once you start getting into the swing of it, it's sort of like very intense therapy. Like yeah. all the emotions that you have been avoiding, all yep. the ways you are contributing to your suffering that you don't want to see starts like bursting forth yep. in a way that is intense and, and phenomenal, you know, yeah. um, to suddenly not have to do that anymore. Often by about five days in, your mind is getting really pliant, malleable. The way that you decide to focus on the breath and you can't, right? It goes there for a few seconds and it's elsewhere. After you've been silent for a while, many people will find their mind is compliant. You can do all sorts of uh, practices and techniques that would be totally inaccessible outside of that, that kind of state. Uh, I, I think the reason these retreats are all selling out is, is partly that uh, there's not a lot of people teaching retreats like this. They're very hard work. And meditation often makes you want to like chill out, not take on this kind of responsibility, be on the road all the time. Um, but the sorts of transformations that I'm seeing from my students are so extraordinary and beyond anything else in my capacity to do for people that about a year ago I decided I was just going to put up with being on the road a lot rather than having a you know full-time normal job at home it was just too important you do this while you do your booked clinical psychology practice which is crazy so, right so everybody yeah. please go to drugfreesleep.com I really <laughs> need to get okay. maybe one day I'll, I'll Make a million bucks off that and come back on the clinical practice. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and on the, I want to say on, on the, um, this deep surgical operation that these noble silent um, all day meditation retreats really do to someone, um, it's just, it's something that I find very humbling that um, I've had the chance to sit Vipassana four times. Cool. And that it's just that something that's thousands of years old when we're only like 25 or 50 years old it's just like sometimes we have to just like just be humble and realize that there's a reason why something's been around for thousands of years it probably has great capacity to uh help us um w like you said be f be fully in control of our minds it's very beautiful when one's able to do things like 
uh, have a, when their mind's trying to run all over the place when they're first sitting and then by a couple of days in, you're sitting and you're, you're yeah. able to bring your, foca your focus in right away. It's great. You've done the retreat with Goenka, is that right? Yeah, with Goenka. Yeah, yeah. so one, one thing he says is, uh, he says a lot is like, uh, commit for 10 days to do what I'm telling you. Um, really test this out for the 10 days. Yeah. Um, I think the constantly trying to figure out if you're doing this right, is this working, is this a good fit, is a huge obstacle to practice. The idea of like, uh, as long as I'm not asked to do anything unethical, um, I will follow these directions for a specific period of time to see if it works for me is, is a, a great suggestion. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's ask you a couple questions on the way out of the show that we like asking our guests, Tucker. All right. All right, all right. Our I'm first question. do one more pop here. I'm trying to do some <laughs> subtle pops, but um, we'll it always looks like you. I have a facial and tick. And too. <laughs> 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 All right, let's do, uh, the first question is, what do you think happens before birth? Where do we come from before birth, and where do we go after death? I tend to think of consciousness as being necessarily continuous, that like, birth is a pretty irrelevant moment in development, right? Birth is moving a shorter distance than my chair to your chair, is all that happens at birth. So that couldn't be the start of consciousness. It's, almost insignificant. Um, I think no start of consciousness can be discerned. I guess my pet theory is you could think of the brain as like an antenna for consciousness. And so the idea that you live in you is like the DJ living in the radio. Um, mm. Your brain is picking up consciousness, or not just your brain, of course, a brain in a jar picks up no consciousness, I would suspect. Your brain and body uh, all of you is picking up consciousness, that as you develop in the womb and as you develop throughout childhood, and, and for many of us, as you develop throughout adulthood, your ability to pick up consciousness, your antenna is getting better. The signal is coming through clearer. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think anything really changes at birth such that we would need to address the question of where you were before that change occurred. And you don't think we come from somewhere uh, outside of this 3D reality into the Earth suits? Um, that question gets kind of recursive in that like this 3D reality is a product of consciousness. If there were anything other than a product of consciousness, there would not be a way to know that that thing existed. So uh, maybe it's just because I'm a Buddhist, but I, I tend to take the Buddhist view that like, consciousness and materiality co-create one another where neither could exist independently. And then what about, um, do you think we're alone in the cosmos? No way. Does anybody think we're alone in the cosmos? Yeah, some people do. Yeah. No, how could there be that much space and we could be that unique? Um, one of the things everybody seems to see in mystical experience is the sense of like oneness of the universe and that it's good, right? Like you see where peop what people mean by God or Holy Spirit, that like everything's unified and it's uh, Buddhists tend to say luminous, uh, Christians would say holy. Uh, the idea that it's this big, that there's something that luminous at the core of it and like we're the fucking best it could do, no way. <laughs> <laughs> what would uh, Satanists call it? I love those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. 
I do. I just wanted to see if you did. <laughs> what do they call it? It's a secret. Okay. And then, do you think we're in a simulation? I realize that having come on a talk show called Simulation, I should have been more prepared for that question. <laughs> but um, what do you mean? You, you take it where you want to go with it. Um, not exactly. Like that you're a character in somebody else's dream or something. Uh, no. Um, that this is all one giant dream in which we're all equally characters, that would be easy for me to subscribe to. What you see in the mystical experience is the unification, right? So like, mm. that my consciousness and your consciousness mm -hmm. are heavily interdependent. The only reason, I don't know if you exist, the only we reason I could even infer that you exist is my conscious experience of you. Even if I've got scientific implements and I'm looking uh, microscopically at your body and I'm seeing cells and atoms, that's still my conscious experience of cells and atoms is the only way I'm getting any information. Um, if, uh, if, <coughs> if your consciousness and my consciousness are the same and I'm creating an image of your face and you're creating an image of my face, it does seem that there would have to be some kind of impersonal consciousness uh, allowing this. You know, the, the, <coughs> the thing that the radio is picking up is out there. And we could call ourselves characters in its dream. What is the most controversial belief that you hold? I believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, when I teach Buddhism, um, you know, people always ask about um, uh, illegal drugs, no problem, sex, I'll talk about my own sex life, sexuality, no problem. The one thing where I feel sheepish talking about it in public is, is um, um, dropping a G-bomb. Why? Why is God controversial to you? Um, one is, is Buddhists are technically atheistic. I, I think if what you mean by God is like the guy in the sky who gets angry when you masturbate, um, nobody I hang out with believes in, in, in uh, that sort of character. Um, if you think about God as like when you use some sort of spiritual practice or by happenstance, all the rest of sensory experience shuts off and there's something left that is like non-dual and luminous. I, I think God's not quite so controversial when mm -hmm. you say that. That's great. But, yeah. uh, you know, here in the Bay, people don't say God. They say the universe. I'm going to ask the universe. And they mean God. It's the same thing. It's just a trendier, trendier, way, of, <laughs> trendier way of saying mm -hmm. it. Um, I think God brings to mind images of like, oh, narrow-minded people who are racist and hate gays, or like uh, a lot of the people that convert into Buddhism nowadays come from a like rationalist background, and God is the ultimate anti-rationalist uh, viewpoint. But if, if you think of God as an experience rather than an unnecessary hypothesis to explain data you can't explain, uh, then I, I, I hope it's not quite so controversial. <laughs> And the last question, Tucker, what do you think is the most beautiful thing in the world? <laughs> I'll just say the first thing that came to mind. 
Uh, did you ever go to Baker Beach by the Golden Gate Bridge? Love Baker Beach, yeah. And um, there's all there's the sand, and then at the between the sand and the water, there's all these like uh, small rocks. Mm -hmm. The surf going off the rocks, watching it, and that sound it makes when the when the surf goes over the rocks. Mm. That was the first thing that came to mind when you asked the most beautiful thing in the Ooh, world. Yeah, that's a good one. I like the nuance of that. That was great too. Yeah. Because that specific one is uh, very relatable for those that live in the area, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then the Golden Gate Bridge is also right there, right on the right. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's yeah. like a few naked old people who yeah. don't yeah. seem to... <laughs> it's, it's a That's what I thought it's, you were going to say. It's a, it's, a, it's a... Do you like the naked schlongs? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great... If you're a San Francisco tourist, you get to see this beautiful beach, and you get to see the Golden Gate Bridge, and you want to see somebody naked in public. It's just part of the San Francisco tourist vibe. experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, that's right. Tucker. Thank you so much for hey, coming thanks, on Alan. the show. This has been a blast. Really thanks for introducing it. me to live streaming. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. super welcome. You, I hope you it crushed good. it. You did a great job. <laughs> crushed I it. I love it. Do yeah. one more of these with me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right. I love it. Someone get a clip of that right there for us. Yeah, later. <laughs> Post it. Yeah, when, I, yeah. When, uh, when yeah. I get in some kind of scandal later, that's going to be the photo of me on all yeah, the yeah, tabloids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge shout out. Thank you everyone for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what your thoughts are. Also go and talk more with your friends, your family, your coworkers, people online on social media about meditation, about sleep, about consciousness. Drugfreesleep.com. Never forget it, drugfreesleep.com. Check that out, links in the bio below. Also meditatewithtucker.com. Um, and the Open Dharma Foundation, go and give if you can or apply if you, if you need help with attending meditation retreats. And go and check out Tucker's meditation retreats. Go and, go and have more conversations about this stuff, guys. We need a more unified world. Huge shout out to Ron Vogus for producing and directing. Thank you, Ronnie. And support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations around the world that you believe in. Support Simulation. Our links are below. Help us continue growing and prospering. You find all those links below. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Huge shout out. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Peace.